0: Notice the, the title there is the song a a Amaskal. We've seen that uh, word recently in the last two Psalms and it means skill in reference to either the music or the wisdom that is being taught. Uh, and it's again a sons of Korah that are ascribed as um, the authors of this text. And this song was fitted for worship. We need to understand that. This was to the choir master to lead the congregation of Israel in worship. Now that We need to keep in mind, if you remember even just reading this psalm, looking that over, how do we worship God? Well, we have to worship him in truth. And worshiping God in truth means we come to him in dependence often and in desperation for salvation. And this psalm is all about that. The occasion of this psalm is uncertain exactly, but it might have to do with the same issue that Psalm 60 is concerned with, where the psalmist writes, Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. This psalm, uh, Psalm 60, relates to an occasion found in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 13, where David is said to strike down 18,000 Edomites. And it's believed that what happened is Edom has joined itself with the Amorites, and David has been up in the north fighting the Amorites. Meanwhile, Edom comes in, and they attack the southern portion of Judah, And they are destroying God's people down there. And there was a great uh, uh, destructive uh, war. And Edom seemed to be the victors. And so David actually sends Joab down there. Also Abishai, it's spoken of in another place, goes down there. And they eventually do defeat the Edomites, but they suffer much loss. And many scholars believe that this psalm, Psalm 60 and Psalm 44, have to do with that same event. Psalm 60 laments that God allowed Edom to gain victory over Israel, but says in faith that upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph, verse 8. And then in verse 12 of Psalm 60, with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. So if indeed this is the same occasion, we need to remember this theme of confidence in God, the Deliverer. Our text has much more to say in relationship to the lament uh, of this occasion there's another possibility that this was written during josiah's time i was when i was growing up how old are you boaz right now seven so one year josiah became king when he was eight right imagine that being king one year from now but josiah was a great king and he was a reforming king. He brought Israel, or Judah, Jerusalem, back in line with the law. But at that time, God had already appointed it, that Judah would be overthrown and would be defeated by their enemies. And so, some people say that this was perhaps written in the time of Judah, or I'm sorry, Josiah. The theme of this psalm is the bewildered faith of Israel. We might call this, not accurately, but I, when I read this psalm, I could see Job in this psalm. We could call it a psalm of Job, maybe. Uh, and, of course, it's, it's a psalm written from the perspective of God's covenant people, not merely an individual, but God's covenant people as they've suffered loss. But certainly, Job's story does have many parallels with what we'll read in this psalm. So, uh, psalm 44, 17 and 18, 17 and 18 of the psalm says, All this has come upon us. And though we have not forgotten you, that, this is a covenantal confession. This is, this is a song of the nation of Israel as they have suffered defeat. Although there are uh, singular uh, references here, some people say that there may be a back and forth between the king and then the people, sort of like our responsive readings. They're, they're responding to one another in their lament but we need to see the covenant nature uh, that this is affecting uh, Israel, not just individuals, but but the whole nation. Well, first we see a mindfully confessed faith, verses 1 through 8. The psalm begins with the recital of God's redeeming act towards his people. This is important. This is right that they're doing so, and they couple this with these memorials which with the fact that Israel has taught these truths to their children, and they know them. They are not, uh, in other words, what we see in these um, confessions here is that we see a people that have been taught what God has done for them, and they have believed in what God has done for Him. that it was him that did it. Look at verses 1 and 2. Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days now this is exactly what god told them to do in the shaman deuteronomy 6 the parents ought to teach their children these things in the days of old they were taught these you with your own hand drove out the nations that is the enemies of god and his people but them the fathers that taught them these things or that were that god graciously planted in the land them you planted You afflicted the peoples, the nations, but them, the fathers, you set free. And the psalmist reflects uh, the obedience to teach the children and how that obedience had been now uh, brought down into generation after generation and they were obedient not only to teach but to hear and understand. Uh, Psalm 78 also deals with that same idea of uh, teaching the generations what God has done but that psalm has often lament that they've forgotten the works of God, and they've actually failed to continue to follow God. But this psalm has a very different tone. This psalm is a very unique psalm of all the psalms, and, and we'll see why. How did these wonders come to pass for the fathers? How do they hold their confession? We see that in verse 3, the confession that God did it in the past. For not by their own sword, that not their skill... Did they win the land, nor did they with their own arm, that's their strength, save them. But your right hand, that's God's personal care of them. And your arm, your strength, and the light of your face, your love for them, for you delighted in them. This is how they were delivered in the past. This is how they gained favor, Not, or this is how they gained victory over their enemies. It was you that did it. And then we see a confession that only God can do it in the future. Verse 4, you are my king, O God. Ordain salvation. And the idea here is is foreordain it for Jacob. Uh, Beforehand, decree it. Make make us the victories through your will. In other words, he's saying, through you we push down. And uh, Alec Matier says that this is the same verb that is used to describe a he-goat butting something. So it's, you, there's a force. There's a forcefulness here. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down. The illusion here, it probably is the same illusion of the treading of the head of the serpent, those who ride, rise against us. This is, we defeat them. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. It's not our skill, it's not our ways, it's not our abilities that will save us. This is a good confession. This is our confession. If this is not our confession, we may not be Christians. Because this is the confession of someone who knows our own weakness and who calls upon the name of the Lord for deliverance. That's exactly what we need for salvation. Nothing but God can save us. In the summary of both confessions, in verse 7, It summarizes the past confession. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. Notice the words there. You've saved us and you put to shame those that hate us. And then we see this present position, this present perfect and future tense in verse 8. In God we have boasted continually. That's something. And that's why whenever this is happening, the people have not fallen into idolatry at this point. They are living in consistency, according to the psalmist, with God's commandments. In God we have boasted continually. They have not worshipped other gods. They haven't followed after other gods. They haven't created other gods. And we will give thanks to your name forever. The very thing that the faithful do. It's the, it's the atheist that won't give God thanks. But he says, we will. We've done it in the past. We're doing it now. We will do it in the future. And this is a faith that they are confessing in God, Selah. And underneath these confessions of faith is a knowledge that the success of the Father, the Fathers in the final, is, uh, final analysis, is attributed only to the sovereignty of God, the sovereign mercy of God, both in his fulfilled plan to demonstrate his love to his people and his hatred and justice towards the wicked. Now, we need to understand that. In light of what comes next because this is where the psalm turns secondly disgrace and shame verse 7 he said you saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us now everything changes in the way that he speaks not everything six verses in a row now the psalmist attributes responsibility to the same sovereign god for israel's disgrace and shame among their enemies verse 9 notice but you have rejected us and disgraced us. The same thing he did to their enemies, they now are experiencing it. And have not gone out with our armies. Verse 10, you have made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoiled. Verse 11, you have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. Verse 12, you have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us, verse 13, the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. Verse 14, you made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. Notice what the psalm does not say. The psalm does not say that these nations, these neighbors, these enemies of theirs were the primary cause of their problem of their shame and disgrace the psalmist knows who god is the primary first mover the first cause of what's happening to israel the psalmist says this is you you are the one god he's not announcing something in disbelief or unbelief he's actually faithful to the knowledge of god the same faithfulness we read in acts 4 when Peter goes before the Sanhedrin and he, says, and he says to them, he said, this city, all this city gathered together with, with Pilate and all the leaders of Israel according to God's sovereign plan. <laughs> and so what he's saying here, this psalmist is saying, accords with that understanding that, yes, this evil has come upon us. And yes, it's our enemies that are doing this. They are doing it and they are responsible for it. But ultimately, God, you are God, they're saying. Can we say that when we go through trials? That we know God is the one who is sovereign over these trials. I had a person one day, I was talking to him, and this was when I was at a, uh, the North Shore, preaching, a really young preacher at the time. And uh, I was preaching this message, that there was trials and there were hardships and especially in relationship to someone's health and I said we know that God ordains that these things happen otherwise they wouldn't happen but we know that God is good so we don't lose hope and afterwards a a man came up and he says I just want to correct you that God is not the one responsible it's Satan who's responsible and I thought that is the most terrifying i thought i could think of that we are at the will of satan and not the will of god you you see when satan goes and buffets that's a word i know because the king james when he buffets job it's god who ordains that as luther said satan is not his own He can't just do what he wants to do evil, and God restrains him, but sometimes God lets him go. And this is the thing that we have to understand. This is a lament of faith to cry out, God, you have done this to us. He is not accusing God of doing evil. He's recognizing that ultimately what has fallen out falls out according to God's sovereign purposes. From the congregation to the psalmist, the result is one of shame and disgrace. And all of these things that have been described has brought upon God's people shame and disgrace. Verse 15 and 16. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. The lament is so deep and all encompassing that everything that is heard and seen all day long only demonstrates, in the psalmist's eyes, shame and disgrace for God's people. And this state of Israel that they're in right now is not altogether uncommon in the Old Testament. It's not uncommon to see Israel beset by judgment in the Old Testament. They are wayward often. In fact, ultimately, they're wayward people. They're not faithful to the covenant that God made with them. But this is unique in one particular sense. This psalm does not admit to sinning against God so as to reap the rewards of their sin. What we see next, third, a plea of innocent is what makes this psalm so unique. The this, this psalmist pleads innocence. Verses 17 through 22. All this has come upon us, though he, we have not forgotten you. We're in Psalm 44. Good to see you. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. And we have not been false to your covenant. Now we're faced with something here. Either the psalmist is lying or he's telling the truth. And seeing that it's scripture <laughs> and it's not just a man saying it, I would imagine he's he's saying what God knows. The way he describes it further is understandable. Verse 18, our heart has not turned back. Notice what he's our heart has not turned back nor have our steps departed from your way. The psalmist is very thorough with this plea, very theologically Uh, astute very accurate the innocence he pleads is not just that we've conducted ourselves in a certain way but the change is inward first their heart is right the heart our hearts have not turned back nor have our steps departed from your way they've been true to God in the covenant that he has made with them and they have not forgotten him inwardly their hearts were faithful outwardly their conduct was right the innocence they plead accords with the heart of the covenant in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, which says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So I can't come to this and say, oh, well, they, you know, they were trusting in their circumcision and, and it was in a matter of the heart, their obedience was. The, the psalmist is saying, in all the ways that we are called to be faithful, we have been faithful. According to the psalmist, they were faithful both inwardly and outwardly to the covenant. And I believe we should understand the psalmist as saying that even their faithfulness was according to God's blessing. That's what Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. That's a promise. That's a blessing. And they say our hearts are circumcised. Spiritually speaking, they're in a position of blessing, the psalmist is saying. Our hearts are true to you. Our steps have been faithful to you. But what is especially difficult for the psalmist is easily understood in light of them now receiving apparent curse rather than blessing. If you want to see the the list of curses, go read Deuteronomy 28. The lament is that although they have kept the covenant in accordance with God's gracious gift, they are in fact suffering. Look at verses 19 through 22. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals, probably, because you could see the next phrase, and covered us with the shadow of death. Probably this has to do with scavengers, jackals being scavengers on a battlefield. Dead, the dead of Israel is being described here, and the jackals are there eating their dead bodies. And God has, notice, you have broken us. Verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, now he says exactly what we might accuse him of doing. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? I know that God knows all. He knows our hearts. Nothing is hidden from him, for he knows the secrets of the heart. This is to say our worship has been true. Even in our hearts. Verse 22, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And this at once, I believe, is the key to understanding this psalm. This verse, Psalm 44, verse 22, yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. This is at once a confession and a lament and a key to understanding the psalm. The confession is, for your sake we are killed all the day long. It's a statement concerning why this suffering has come upon them. Why has it? If, if we haven't been unfaithful to the covenant, if we've been true inwardly and outwardly, why is this coming upon us? And the, the confession here, the statement is a true statement. It's in you why this is coming upon us. It's according to your purposes. Now, Is that enough for us, God's people, to know that God is acting in a way and in accordance with his will while we don't comprehend that? I think for God's people, especially in the new covenant, we have been blessed to find the answer to their lament, if I could say it that way. For your sake means that God's purposes in their suffering is for his own sake. He has purposes that we can't know. We don't understand. They're deeper, they're higher, they're wider is what he's saying. And this first means that suffering in this context is not always because of our disobedience. God's people when they suffer, when they go through sickness, when they go through defeat political uprising and and all the things that our society is saying we can look at that sometimes I do and I lament and I say this why why is the church so weak in the midst of this why are we not more uh powerful to make a change why are you know, Christ is the head of the church all things are under his feet where his body that means there's an authority placed on us in the world Satan can't oppose us to defeat us so you know I ask, I I I Come, I come to God with those questions. Give us power, empower us, help us to win this victory, so to speak, not just for a society, but for the souls of men, for salvation, for our children, for our children's children. I don't want our kids to grow up in an atheist world or secularize government to the point where the worship of the true and living God is forbidden. Why do these things come about? The purposes that are hidden in God himself are at play, according to the psalmists, in their suffering. Derek Kinder put it, I think, very well. He said, for your sake implies the revolutionary thought that suffering... For God's people may be a battle scar rather than a punishment. You know, it's it's this mindset that when in John chapter 9, Jesus heals the man born blind, has the people asking, who sinned, this man or his father? That he was born blind. Uh, The suffering that he's going through must be a one-on-one relationship to his sin. It's the same mindset. And this psalm is saying, no, that's not the way that suffering always works. Yes, we know that God disciplines whom he loves. But this battle scar may just be the fact that we are warring against spiritual darkness. And this psalm, I think, regards those truths. We could look at this psalm as an eschatological psalm. All of them are in a way. But this is so appropriate for our worship in the new covenant. And I think this only, I think that we have the ability and the joy of fulfilling worship in light of this psalm. Much more so than the Old Testament saints did. Why do I say that? Romans chapter 8. The difference is that Christ has come. That's the difference. Christ has come. But notice what happens when Christ comes. We were talking about it beforehand. All things are under his feet. We reign with him. He's in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. He is reigning and ruling right now is what that means. And yet, in in heaven, those who were beheaded for his namesake come before the Father and say, when are you going to vindicate us? When are, you, when are we going to be vindicated? And God says, There's, I have a plan. <laughs> he tells them in that very symbolic picture of heaven, the heavenly scene. I have a plan. Well, here we see the truths that undergird our confidence in God in light of that plan that we cannot know all the details of. Verse 18 for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I wish I could go back and tell the psalmist that, you know. And, and maybe that, that's not the point. Maybe we need to just lament sometimes. Sometimes we need to stay in that lament of Psalm 44 and, and admit that God is God in the deliverance, in the future hope, and in the suffering. And in the suffering. But he says it here. This is, that's not where we end, though. Because we don't end in despair, for sure. We end in hope. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we know, if you go down to verse 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. You see, this is the difference. We know that because of what follows here. Every, Jesus, <laughs> he doesn't change everything in the sense that the Old Testament didn't have light. But the light he brings is far better than the light they had. Watch this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We're we're going in eternity here. In order that he might be firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So in other words, from eternity to eternity, if God's love is shed on you, Psalm 44, Psalmist, people of God, and you're going through suffering, God's love for you will not wane. His care for you will not lack. You will never lack of his care for you or his salvation of you he loved you in eternity he chose you then he's called you now in the present and he will glorify you that is certain according to the apostle now what shall we say to these things that certainty if god is for us who can be against us well the answer is many can be against us but they don't matter (laughs) that's really the answer ultimately they don't matter we might have a multitude of enemies but they can't overcome us because god is god you see the very thing the psalmist holds on to in his lament is the thing that we need for our hope in this life he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, in some ways, a lot of people have brought charges against God's elect in the history of the world, but none of them stick before God. None of them stick in his throne room, in his judicial court. Who is he uh, to... uh, It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger and sore. Nakedness there is shame. That's what that means. Being shamed. That's a cultural imperative now if you're a Christian. Shame the Christians, you know. How are we going to take that? We're not going to lose if we're shamed. We can't lose, according to the apostle, because of Christ. As it is written, listen to what he quotes here. Does it sound familiar? As it is, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered and it doesn't matter is what that's what the psalm the psalmist is saying it cannot destroy us our defeat in battle our lack physically speaking our our lack of of our goals being accomplished in this world even even as a parent if things do turn and our children can't grow up freely worshiping christ Nothing is going to separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. Nothing can can remove the the certain hope of our salvation. The certainty of it. In the face of the only answer being, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we say, we can say amen. For your sake. Why? Why? Because all things are working together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Now, you can say amen while you lament. I don't know if you've ever known that. But while we lament, sometimes some of the most important times of faith, faith is while I'm lamenting over something. Because this is where you see this. This is God being God. And God must be God for me to be saved. By God. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I read about... Uh, a martyr in india or was it pakistan i believe it was india and a woman became a christian and it was an honor killing and she was an elite she was a a wealthy she was a you know high caste member and her best friend dragged her by the hair down the steps threw her out a window she survived the fall and I won't give you all the details, but it was gruesome. It was horrible. And she's a conqueror. She conquered through Christ. For your sake, in the the Psalms, is said, apart from knowing how all things work together for good in the face of suffering, for your sake, we say amen. For us, we are assured through Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf that we are gods, even if the stars fall. We belong to God. Uh, This psalm is is eschatological in the sense of containing the gospel truths of suffering. Only the gospel gives hope in this sort of suffering. You say it that way. Only the gospel gives hope in this sort of suffering. And we should claim it strongly for ourselves through Christ. We will suffer in this life. It's certain we will. We may not all suffer to this degree or in the same way, but we all suffer not as opposed to God's will, but if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. That's we suffer with Christ. You see, in the final analysis, when we get to the final petition in verses 23 through 26, go there with me back to Psalm 44. The psalmist says, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Here is a mercy, because, you know, I read that and I say, how dare the psalmist say that? And I wouldn't say it. I don't think I would. Maybe I would. I don't know. I've never been, perhaps, in this place of despair. I don't think he says it in unbelief. And this is why. He might say it in ignorance to a degree, but not in unbelief. When I say unbelief, having no faith, I believe he this is a this is a faithful psalmist. But we see an analogy of this, don't we, in the New Testament? Mark chapter four. There's a great windstorm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has called his disciples and they're on the boat. <laughs> and and I guess these windstorms are just, I've never seen them i've seen the ocean out here i don't like getting on the deep sea ocean so i've never seen the thing go like this and you don't see that you know anything except for waves but evidently the sea of galilee is like that and it swirls and it's just it's gnarly and they have names for the levels of storms that come through there and this is one of those bad storms And the disciples are rightly, these are seamen, they know what these storms are like. They know that their lives are in danger and they are terrified and Jesus is sleeping. He's sleeping. And doesn't it paint a very good picture in light of this psalm? He's sleeping and they cry out, don't you care about us? (laughs) Wake up, don't you care about us? And he says, what are you afraid for? (laughs) It's just remarkable. I don't think he says that merely because he. I don't think he says that because it's not a scary circumstance or a horrible circumstance to be. I think he says that because he's with them. And then he just says some words peace be still calms everything calms I love what R.C. Sproul brings out of that the terror of the disciples after he calms the storm now you have someone to fear (laughs) what kind of man what manner of man is this that even the sea and the waves obey him but he loves us he is not asleep he doesn't sleep nor does he slumber but if we're honest, when we are in trials, we can come to this place where we say, where are you? What are you doing? What is your purpose in these? Verse 24, why do you hide your face? This is in contrast with the ironic blessing. Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Why have you forsaken me, we might hear? Verse 45, 25, for our soul is bowed down to dust and our belly clings to the ground. What does that sound like? It sounds like Genesis 3:14. On your belly the serpent you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here's what I think is so profound about this psalm. I think what we're reading here we're reading a picture of the curse. The curse that Jesus received for our sin. We're we're reading an analogy. A shadow, if you will, of the suffering that he would experience on our behalf. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. And you see, if you step back, you sort of ask yourself, what's God's big purpose in this psalm, Psalm 44? Is it to display that he would take the only person. Israel comports with Christ. He would take the only person who was actually only ever faithful to his covenant. And that person would suffer. And he would taste the curse. And he would cry out, why have you forsaken me? And he would be the sinless one. These psalms are incredible when you see what God's purposes are for them. But think of that. We, thousands of years later, 3,000 years later, after this was written perhaps, are seeing good news in this psalm. How many generations? I know the reformers went to this psalm often. Many generations as since the reformers have gone to this psalm and said, look what God has done. Remember what God has done. While we suffer, look what he's done. This is a perpetual gift to the church, this psalm. And yet, in Christ, I think the fullness comes with it. Verse 26, rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Again, the psalm ends on that note of faith we need you and that's exactly where we need to be with god it is for the glory of god that he saves his people for the sake of his steadfast love is for the sake of the promises he's given to his people this should be the basis of every prayer for deliverance save us for your name's sake